0: Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial Show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for 2 dollars a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for 2 dollars a month or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl, like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search queer serial bonus shows and there's a whole feed of queer serial bonus shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new queer serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series, and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always, straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history, other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series, episode by episode, with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in season 3 episode 7 if you want a hint stay tuned thanks so much for all of your support I literally couldn't do it without you enjoy the show This podcast includes text from real homophile era publications letters and organizational documents read by voice actors The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date thousands of years ago, ancient Sumer. The Sumerians wrote a myth of humanity's creation at the drunken hands of the gods. Desperate to rest as they harvest the fields of the earth, the gods cry out to Enki, god of wisdom, for his assistance. He's resting, having just created everything. His mother, Nama, comes to him with the tears of the gods. Enki rolls his eyes and orders his mother and the other fertility gods to create beings to work the earth. Along with Ninma, the mother goddess, and likely one of the first Mother Earth characters in human history, together Ninma and Nama create humanity to pick up the hard labor the gods don't want to do. Enki wakes up and hosts a huge banquet to celebrate humanity's creation, and all the old gods applaud Enki's wisdom in ordering his mother and Ninma to create humans. What a smart man! Enki and Ninma, once lovers, now drink together at the celebration. Ninmah is all-powerful, having once cursed Enki to a death that could only be saved by her kiss. Now in a drunken challenge at the banquet, Ninmah tells Enki that despite him ordering humans to be created, any human she brings to life has their fate determined by her. She is the mother. Enki accepts the challenge.
1: Whatever fate you decide, good or bad, I will improve it.
0: Ninmah builds a man whose hands are weak. Enki improves his fate by making him a servant to the king because he will not be able to steal. Ninmah builds a man who is blind. Enki improves his fate by giving him musical abilities and a life as minstrel to the king. Ninma and Enki go on and on, building people they perceive as broken and positioning them as servants to the king. Ninmah eventually builds the greatest challenge, a person who must have no purpose at all, a being with neither penis nor vagina. Enki determines that this being, this eunuch, will be the wise one who will watch over the king. The date of this Sumerian story's origin is unknown, but the Sumerians, one of the first known civilizations in the world, imagined this creation myth with consideration for people of variant gender, which means they existed. They were given a place in the world, and this time an important one, just like Lord Varys. The Sumerians established a story that inspired many creation myths to come, including Adam and Eve and Eden, and the stories would often answer a question that never really needed to be asked How will the people with disabilities, the minorities, the women, the queers, all serve their God? How will the queens, the minstrels, the jesters, the civil servants serve their King? For thousands of years, humans passed down stories of creation that defined our existence to serve a great god, or a great king, who was really just another man. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. Okay, let's fast forward. 6,000 years or so. England, 1770. The Chevalier de Yon is revered as a political exile from France. The Chevalier, the knight, had served under King Louis XV in his king's secret spy service. But in an attempt to keep her temporary position as France's liaison to the English court, she blackmails the French crown with a collection of damning state secrets. During her exile in England, social circles hear rumors spreading that de Yon isn't what she seems. The spy had apparently been raised as a man in order to gain a family inheritance, and she served the French king as a man, and came to England as her true female sex. Having already openly embraced her androgyny, De Leon doesn't deny the rumors. She'll even admit to it in her autobiography. In 1777, the court of the king's bench in Westminster Hall agrees with the knight's new declarations that, as an honest Christian, she shouldn't have to live a lie, and she's legally declared a woman. Now 49 years old, she begins negotiations to return to France and hand over the government's documents she'd taken while serving as their spy. She agrees to never publicly present herself as a man for the rest of her life. Restarting in France, Guillon requests to join the French military and create an all-female battalion against the British in the 1778 American Revolution. The French government tells her to join a convent on protests, she's arrested and jailed. Eventually the Chevalier returns to England to live out her life until 1810 when her great secret is revealed. Coming home, her roommate finds her body and Deon's De obituary is printed. She had been assigned male at birth all along. She was raised as a male not because of a family inheritance, but because she had a penis. The rumors that she was only raised as a man for an inheritance were likely started by her, and she tricked the governments of England and France into allowing her to transition publicly. The Chevalier d'Eon lived openly as a woman for 33 years. D'Eon's gender variance is a social shock at the time, of course. There were betting pools about her sex on the London Stock Exchange. But the books all prove that she's not much of an abnormality— The colony of Massachusetts passed laws against cross-dressing nearly a hundred years before her French exile. The term transgender won't come into popular use until the late 1960s or so, but one thing never changes. People we now call transgender have always existed. Transgender historian Susan Stryker will write that, like all language, our understanding of gender doesn't come pre-installed in our brains. Biologically, we are born with capacity to express gender and language, but depending on the society we're born in, the when and the where a person lives, our genders can blossom in innumerable ways. Gender systems are cultural. Ancient rabbinical texts explain Judaism once recognized seven specific genders. During the colonization of the Americas, Spanish conquistadors recorded mujarados, male women. Many indigenous American cultures include three or more social genders. In the modern United States, gender will be sorted by a male and female binary, but in different places and at different times, gender could be determined by the type of work a person does or what social standing they hold. And sometimes the reverse is true. The Chevalier d'Eon, in 1778, lost both her social standing and her work when she became legally recognized as a woman. The French government essentially did what the Sumerian gods Nenma and Enki did, a cost-benefit analysis of which bodies serve the government best. Which lives are most worthy? Over time, the governments determine that if you're queer in ways that make you unable to reproduce and contribute humans to the national workforce or military, you're useless. If you're a person of color, your labor is free for the government. If you're any combination of queer or color or physical impairment, or you are just past reproduction, you receive no privileges. The Chevalier had political connections and state secrets in her possession. She had leverage to transition. Most people... From the very beginning we're not so lucky the largest medieval map of the world still known to exist the hereford map of mundi was drawn in the 13th century it's a circle with jerusalem at the center and all important locations scattering outward Egypt, Mount Olympus, Scotland, Ireland, every known place in the world is within the circle. And just on the outside, living on the islands on the edge of the world, are the so-called monstrous races. Nude humans with double genitalia walk on the edges of the earliest portrait of the world under a Latin inscription reading, A people having both sexes. They are unnatural in many ways. The term unnatural in this context is unclear. Perhaps it means sexually, perhaps it's connected to the person's turban, the only clothing they wear in the image. Either way, this person of non-Christian faith and non-traditional gender, and perhaps non-traditional sexuality, they live on the outskirts of the world. Hippocrates and Aristotle mused on these humans with doubled or ambiguous genitals. They saw spectrums of gender. Greek historian Diodorus Siculus described this identity sometime between 60 and 30 BCE through the mythological Hermaphroditus, child of Hermes and Aphrodite. Siculus wrote... Hermaphroditus, as he has been called, who was born of Hermes and Aphrodite and received a name which is a combination of those of both his parents. Some say that this Hermaphroditus is a god and appears at certain times among men, and that he is born with a physical body which is a combination of that of a man and that of a woman, and that he has a body which is beautiful and delicate like that of a woman, and has the masculine quality and vigor of a man." But there are some who declare that such creatures of two sexes are monstrosities, and coming rarely into the world as they do, they have the quality of presaging the future, sometimes for evil and sometimes for good. So Wizard of Oz about it. For centuries following, people who have ambiguous genitalia are called hermaphrodites. The person on the edge of the medieval map and the Greek character are not specifically transgender. They are what we now call intersex. Intersex people are born with chromosomes, gonads, genitals, and or sex hormones that don't fit with typical definitions of the male and female binary. They might have ambiguous genitalia. They might have both ovarian and testicular tissue. They might have a chromosomal combination of XXY instead of XY or XX. Some people are born with what appears to be typical genitalia, but then puberty shows that their hormones or internal organs don't match their perceived gender. Some people live their entire lives without knowing they're intersex about 1% of humanity is and probably always has been intersex. Records show stories of an intersex Vietnamese general in the 18th century and an intersex American who shook up an election when his status as a male was questioned. Herculine Barbin, an intersex person in 19th century France, wrote her memoirs, including the story of being forced by her government to change her legal gender from female to male. The memoirs were found by her bed after her suicide and will finally be published over 100 years after her death. Her birthday, November 8th, will one day be commemorated as Intersex Day of Remembrance. Until then, understanding of intersex and transgender identity is more fully explored as the first wave of feminism rolls through Seneca Falls. Perception of gender roles is changing. For example, Amelia Bloomer, the first woman to operate, edit, and own a newspaper for women. In the mid-19th century, Bloomer explains that long skirts and intricate undergarments are forms of bondage that tie women down. Her push for clothing reform picks up shortly after the Seneca Falls Convention, and she writes in her publication that women should be allowed to wear loose trousers that gather at the ankle, a style which comes to bear her name, Bloomers. The dress reform that came with feminism is the visual indication that gender role distinctions are changing. Though not long after that, Dr. Mary Walker, a Union surgeon in the Civil War, is arrested for... Wearing pants. Meanwhile, marksman Joseph Lobdell publishes his memoir, The Female Hunter of Delaware and Sullivan Counties. Joseph's book follows his hunting adventures, his soured marriage to a man, and reasons for equal employment for women, the sex he was assigned at birth. In 1861, Joseph Lobdell and Marie Louise Perry are married in Pennsylvania and spend their marriage in the woods. They hunt, they have a pet bear, and eventually they are arrested for vagrancy and sent to jail. Later, Marie writes letters to the jail begging for Joseph to be set free, but it's too late. They know he was assigned female at birth. Wearing dress-not-belonging-to-his-or-her-sex-in-public-is-illegal. In 1879, Joseph Lobdell is locked in Willard Insane Asylum, where a doctor writes an article about the woman who...
2: "...considered herself a man in all the name implies."
0: The article is titled, A Case of Sexual Perversion. Soon after, the newspaper prints Joseph's obituary. It's incorrect, Joseph hasn't died. They print another obituary again a few years later in 1885, but it's also not true. His wife probably thinks he's dead, but he lives until 1912 in that asylum. Still, other people pass and get away with their secret. Another obituary is printed in the San Francisco Call for a different man in 1879. This one is true. One eyed Charlie Parkhurst, renowned West Coast stagecoach driver of the Gold Rush era, has died of tongue cancer. You might remember him from the San Francisco History episode this season. Due to its bizarre nature, when this obituary runs in San Francisco, it's picked up by the New York Times.
3: Last Saturday, in a little cabin on the Moss Ranch about six miles from Watsonville, Charlie Parkhurst, the famous coachman, the fearless fighter, the industrious farmer, and expert woodman, died of the cancer of his tongue. When the hands of the kind friends who had ministered to his dying wants came to lay the body of the adventurous Argonaut, a discovery was made that was literally astounding. Charlie Parkhurst was a woman. The discoveries of the successful concealment for protracted periods of the female sex under the disguise of the masculine are not infrequent, but the case of Charlie Parkhurst may fairly claim to rank, by all odds, the most astounding of them all. That a young woman should assume man's attire and, friendless and alone, defy the dangers of the voyage of 1849 to then the almost mythical California, dangers over which hard pioneers still grow boastful, has in it sufficient of the wonderful that she should achieve distinction in an occupation above all professions calling for the best physical qualities of nerve, "'courage, coolness, and endurance, "'and that she should add to them "'the almost romantic personal bravery "'that enables one to fight one's way "'through the ambush of an enemy. "'Seems almost fabulous. "'And that for thirty years she should be "'in constant and intimate association "'with men and women, and that her "'true sex should never have been even "'suspected, and that she should finally "'go knowingly down to her death "'without disclosing by word or deed "'who she was or why she "'had assumed man's dress and responsibility responsibilities are things that a reader might be justified in doubting, if the proof of their exact truth was not so abundant and conclusive. He was in his day one of the most dexterous and celebrated of the famous California drivers, and it was an honor to be striven for to occupy the spare end of the driver's seat when the fearless Charlie Parkhurst held the reins of a four or six in hand.
0: The headline in the New York Times obituary?
3: 30 Years in Disguise A noted old Californian stage driver discovered, after death, to be a woman.
0: Yes, the periods are in the headline. In Charlie's place and time, he is able to pass as male. He has status and whiteness, and so he has the opportunity to build some capital and support himself and live his life in peace. And he's not alone. Soldier Jack Garland, also living in Southern California, and New York City politician Murray Hall are also found to be assigned female at birth upon their deaths. Like one-eyed Charlie Parkhurst, they were able to transition quietly, but forced to hide their secret, until forced to reveal it in death. But again, these are white men with privileges to work with. If a person is transitioning to female, even with the privileges that come from being white, they would have the obligations of marriage and family, which of course would expose their trans identity. Men can work and travel, start somewhere new, depending on the time and place they live. Trans women often have a more difficult journey. Even as new methods of transitioning become available. Some cultures throughout humanity's known history have allowed people to change their gender because of that person's own dreams or visions. Other cultures, such as those at the turn of the 20th century, begin to allow people to change their gender with scalpels and syringes. These advancements do not come easily. This week on Forgotten Fairy Tales, Blackmailing Billy Talmage. She was mentioned way back in episode 1 when the daughters of Belias were forming, on the bonus podcast, it's Billy's story. Before Belita's when the wrong person discovered her secret. You can hear that story and several others on the bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial for $3 a month. You can also get transcripts of the episodes, photos to the research process, cute buttons, credit on an episode, the book Gay Bar, written by 1950s gay bar owner Helen Branson and published by the Mattachine Society in 1957. And of course, there's the mug with the podcast artwork. Check it out. Patreon.com. Slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes.
1: The fistula was an inch and a quarter long, transverse.
0: James Marion Sims, a physicist, addresses the New York Academy of Medicine, November 18, 1857.
1: In the base of the bladder, with an abundance of tissue... Its edges were accurately adjusted, and I expect to effect at once a magical cure. In
0: 1845, while running what may have been the first women's hospital, he was presented with a woman who had a vesicovaginal fistula, a complication in childbirth.
1: But greatly to my surprise
0: and mortification, it was a failure. He became determined to cure the problem, which could only be done by experimenting. Dr. Sims called for enslaved women to experiment on, and like so many of their ancestors before them, The value of the bodies belonging to women of color with childbirth complications is determined, and 12 slave owners hand over 12 women.
1: The same operation was tried on another case with a like unfortunate result.
0: Lucy, Betsy, Anarcha, and several unnamed others went under his knife, perhaps willingly to the extent that they wanted to be cured, but certainly unwillingly as his non-consenting property. Anesthesia was recently made available, but he used none. And after
1: this, with various and constantly varied modifications on others, till each one had suffered numerous operations, but all to no purpose. And thus I worked on, not for weeks or months, but for long weary years before a single case was cured.
0: He tired his doctor's assistants until he had to have his patients assist in surgery.
1: My repeated failures brought a degree of anguish that I cannot now depict, even were it desirable.
0: Until after 13 surgeries on Anarcha, he cured her vesicovaginal fistula.
1: All my spare time was given to the development of a single idea, the seemingly visionary one of cure this sad affliction, which not unfrequently follows the fulfillment of the law pronounced by an offended God when he said to the woman, In sorrow and suffering shalt thou bring forth children.
0: In sorrow and suffering, experiments on women of color made Dr. Sims renowned as the father of modern gynecology. Through their horrifying sacrifices, through experiments that taught doctors to understand the complexities of a cisgender female body, modern medicine can begin to traverse the space between, from male to female, or female to male. As anesthesia becomes more popular, and surgeries aren't quite so horrifying, people begin to request them in order to cross the binary. Nearly half a century later, Martha Baer is campaigning for women's rights in Galatia when she's censured and sent back home to Germany for using male body language. Back in Germany, Martha meets sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld. He's the founder of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which researches sexuality and gender and advocates for the repeal of Germany's Paragraph 175, Outlawing Homosexuality. I touched on him way back in the very first episode of the podcast. Hirschfeld had seen Chicago's underground queer subculture in 1892, and he was fascinated by the trial of Oscar Wilde in 1895, who wasn't. And as he noticed so many of his homosexual patients committing suicide, he began his committee in order to study and advocate for queer people. Their motto? Justice through science. A German newspaper writes, Dr. Hirschfeld makes public propaganda under the cover of science,
4: which does nothing but poison our people. Real science should fight against this.
0: While he studies gender and sexual variants, Dr. Hirschfeld gives trans people space to live in, surgeries they require, and he hires them to work for him. Martha writes notes for Dr. Hirschfeld, relaying experiences of growing up as a girl, but feeling that inside, he was a boy. Dr. Hirschfeld and Martha Baer arrange for sex change surgeries in October 1906, making Carl Baer one of the first people to transition their gender through surgery. Carl leaves the hospital that December with a medical certificate declaring his legal new gender. He and Hirschfeld turn his case notes into the somewhat autobiographical, somewhat fictional book, Memoirs of a Man's Maiden Years, published under the pseudonym N.O. Body. It will later become a film, but it won't survive the Nazis. Shortly after Carl Baer's transition in the early 20th century, Magnus Hirschfeld coins a new term, transvestite. There's no official term for people who cross the gender binary, but Hirschfeld has seen these people in the homosexual bars in Germany, such as the El Dorado's drag shows. He studied them in clinical settings, and of course he saw them in Chicago. Through his studies of gender variants, he's compiled information to publish a book in 1910 called The Transvestites, The Erotic Drive to Cross-Dress. Hirschfeld writes about queer history, legal and social problems, and explanations through case histories. Many new terms are coming from many doctors. Havelock Ellis, an English doctor who works with Hirschfeld, calls this gender phenomenon a sexto-aesthetic inversion. That term obviously doesn't stick, and neither does his other term for it, Ionism, inspired by the French Chevalier d'Eon. The entire Hirschfeld story could be its own Netflix series, so let's move on. But even outside that world, many more terms follow those studies. German researcher, geneticist Richard Goldschmidt, observes the sexual development of gypsy moths. Goldschmidt finds that they are born male, female, hermaphrodites, and also gynandromorphs, a none-of-the-above option. He calls this intersex. Of course, eventually we won't even use the term hermaphrodite, we'll simply use intersex to describe people born with any variation in sex characteristics that don't fit the typical definitions of a body in the gender binary. And the the none-of-the-above option, I guess, would be non-binary in 2020? Sure, why not? The terms will probably change again in two years. By 1930, German doctors have recorded several different procedures to allegedly correct intersex bodies. Like the enslaved women of color experimented on, intersex children are put under the knife and forced into either side of the male-female binary. This still happens in 2020. Perhaps some of these surgeries are wanted, In 1932, a German gynecologist and obstetrician performs an intersex surgery with hormone treatment on a patient with both testicular and ovarian tissue, and she even begins menstruating later. In other cases, such as in Zurich in the early 1940s, several children have their clitorises amputated. While some operations are wanted or needed, other cases result in a child forced to one gender or another, not allowed to grow and discover a space between or choose their own gender, mental health issues obviously follow. Since the Sumerian creation myth 5,000 years ago, cisgender people have looked at our gender variant bodies and determined what our bodies mean to them. As historian Susan Stryker writes, most people struggle to see humanity in a person if they cannot recognize that person's gender immediately. To them, it feels like an encounter with something not quite human, possibly something monstrous. Sometimes this leads to a gut reaction, panic, disgust, hatred, violence. We should question that reaction. Stryker asks, Why aren't more encounters with lesser-known forms of gender met with wonder, delight, attraction, or curiosity? One of the few doctors who met trans and intersex people with a curiosity, a helping hand, Dr. Hirschfeld goes on a world speaking tour in 1930. While he's away, Hitler takes power. Hirschfeld's institute is destroyed by young students from the National Socialist League as they shout, Burn Hirschfeld! They beat up his staff and burn the books in Opera Square. The Berlin police announce Hirschfeld's institute of sexual research closed forever. Hirschfeld is out of the country on tour, actually avoiding the political unrest that he saw coming in Germany. So an endocrinologist in the U.S. helps organize the American leg of his tour. Dr. Harry Benjamin had hung out with Hirschfeld at the El Dorado in Germany and now works in New York and San Francisco. He's friends with Alfred Kinsey, of course, the creator of the Kinsey Scale. In 1948, Dr. Kinsey has just published his study of sexual behavior in the human male, which set forth Harry Hay and many others to become gay activists. Dr. Kinsey contacts his endocrinologist friend, Harry Benjamin, in San Francisco about a child who wanted to become a girl, he says. He met this child, who was assigned male at birth, during interviews for his Kinsey scale studies. Dr. Benjamin has never seen anything like this and is immediately inspired to begin helping these people, the kind he recalls from the El Dorado in Germany, the gender variant. He rarely even takes payment to help them. Through Kinsey and other doctors, Harry Benjamin begins to meet many patients considered to be transvestites. Many will transition, and one will have the nation's full attention.
5: Hi there. This is Devlin's granny, Faye Camp. Devlin thought you must be tired of their voice after all that monologuing, although I can't imagine anyone tiring of Devlin's voice. Nevertheless, I'm here to read this ad and give you a break. This episode is supported by Stitcher Premium. You can join Stitcher Premium for all kinds of shows by using promo code MATACHINE, for one month free. Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like You Must Remember This, the Hollywood History Podcast, and The Rachel Maddow Show, which personally I am obsessed with. Plus, get access to exclusive Stitcher content, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Only four ninety nine a month or $34.99 a year. Go to stitcher.com forward slash premium to sign up today. Or I will break you in half. I mean it. Use promo code Mattachine for one month free. Bye now.
0: <laughs> oh my God, that was wonderful. Thank you, Granny. <laughs> November 5th, 1945, Life Magazine reports.
6: From the moment she got off the train in California more than 30 years ago, Lucy Hicks liked Oxnard and Oxnard liked Lucy. The town was newly rich on sugar beets, and its Chinese and Mexican laborers blew their pay nightly on light ladies gambling whiskey and opium. Lucy, a skinny six-foot Kentucky Negro, decided to stay, set out to get a good reputation as a preliminary to getting a bad one. She began cooking for Oxnard's leading families, and by the time she opened her first house of prostitution off Oxnard's crib-bordered China Alley, her genius in the kitchen was the talk of the town. Lucy Hicks is a caterer and a bordello boss.
0: One night, the sheriff arrests her. Oxnard's leading banker shows up at the jail immediately to bail her out. He's scheduled a huge dinner party, and without Lucy,
6: the meal would be a disaster. After that, for three decades, Lucy Hicks trafficked successfully in both sin and souffle. Oxnard's population grows in this time.
0: Lucy's body house expands into a half block of nice houses, well
6: furnished with pretty paint and window boxes full of geraniums. In Ventura County, she became well known as Oxnard's huge American Crystal Sugar Co. refinery. Lucy was the more spectacular sight. She wore bright, low-cut silk dresses from which her slat-like collarbones protruded and she affected picture hats and high-heeled shoes. Her wigs were her pride. She had a long, black, wavy one, a short, straight, bobbed one, and for special occasions, a shoulder-length bob in red.
0: Lucy is locally known to be involved in her bordellos commercially, but not personally, as she continues to cook for Oxnard's socially elite. So elite that when President Roosevelt died, the newspapers print a paragraph written by Lucy in solemn mourning, She purchases nearly $50,000 in war bonds and gives money to the church, the Red Cross, the Boy Scouts, and other charities. Cackling happily.
2: Just some F where the money came from.
0: As wartime laws shut down many body houses on the West Coast, Lucy's local fame and catalog of town secrets kept her houses immune. In 1945, just before this Time magazine article, the Navy traces a case of venereal disease back to Lucy's business. They insist on entering the house to examine the women inside. Lucy tells them she's just the proprietor,
6: but the doctor insists on examining her too. A few minutes later, the doctor had news the like of which Oxnard had not heard since the San Francisco earthquake. Lucy was a man.
0: Mail comes pouring into Time magazine. The final line of their article, Lucy Was a Man, is delivered like a punchline, pulling the rug out from under the reader. The reaction is brutal. Subscribers write in to nominate Lucy as Time's Man of the Year 1945. Time's editor writes that this story is one of astonishment and embarrassment. 59-year-old Lucy and her husband, Reuben Anderson, are off to court. The Afro-American newspaper covers the case on December 12, 1945, on their front page. Nightlife queen guilty of perjury in sex case. Along with an illustration of a woman standing beside a sign reading, Beware, not what you think it is. Every female pronoun in the article is accompanied by quotations. Lucy is charged with falsifying marriage documents and defrauding government because she claimed her husband's GI benefits. The court argues that she's not legally married to him because she is a man. Do you often wear a wig?
2: If I think I look better with a wig, I do.
0: Mr. Hicks, was your first husband a man?
2: Well, he was supposed to be.
0: Hmm. Do you have male sex organs? Lucy doesn't answer. Do you have organs which are typically described as male? Lucy still doesn't answer. What part of your body do you consider to be feminine?
3: For one thing, my chest.
0: Lucy leans forward to the jury, revealing what the newspaper calls a very masculine chest.
3: I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived, dressed, acted as just what I am, a woman. It's only petty maliciousness that is trying to cause me heartache and harm. If they would devote the same amount of energy to local problems that are hurting the community, it would be much better. I have lived a good life, a Christian life, and though I am a Christian, I reverend all religious faiths. I have lived a good citizen for many years in this town, and I'm going to die a good citizen, but I am going to die a woman.
0: Five doctors declare her a man. Her defense attorney explains that Lucy Hicks Anderson has hidden organs. They won't be able to know how those organs operate until an autopsy after her death. Fortunately, this is not a story like those of Lucy's ancestors. She is not experimented on for medical progress' sake. The attorney's theory doesn't work, though. The jury finds Lucy guilty of impersonation and fraud. Her marriage is declared void. She serves time and ten years probation, as the court forbids Lucy from wearing women's clothing. She's kept in the men's section of the Federal House of Detention, but has been wearing women's clothes because she has no others, according to prison officials who spoke to the Afro-American newspaper in 1946. The paper also covers Sergeant Reuben Anderson's federal trial in which he faces a maximum of 10 years in a federal prison and top fine of $10,000, not because he married another man, but because he had the government send his male wife $950 in allotment checks, the paper reports. After Lucy and Ruben serve their time, they leave town and live quietly in Los Angeles. Oxnard's leading cook, confidant, philanthropist, and bordello boss... Dies in Los Angeles in 1954. Gender is a social role. Despite her status and wealth, Lucy Hicks Anderson's class is still diminished by her race and her trans identity. When looking at social status, all intersections must be considered. Race, class, culture, nationality, citizenship status, sexuality, assigned gender, disability, age, the list goes on. Just having money doesn't put you on top. Perhaps a white trans woman running a house of ill fame wouldn't have been singled out by the military doctor in the strip search. She might not have been stripped at all. In the case of Lucy Hicks Anderson, when her secret comes out, no one comes to help. Not even Oxnard's leading banker. In the cases of the many women fortunate enough to come to the Langley Porter Clinic for a medical transition, help is eager and ready to begin. Louise Lawrence, a transgender woman, is working with Alfred Kinsey, introducing him to trans people to offer him their life histories, which Kinsey pays Louise to write up. And she works with Hirschfeld's endocrinologist friend, Dr. Harry Benjamin, and Dr. Carl Bowman. Bowman has already had a long career, going back to medical work in World War I and testifying at the trials of Leopold and Loeb. Dr. Bowman now plans to host a psychiatric
2: conference. We have a very unusual case this morning.
0: Several doctors take their seats in a small medical amphitheater.
2: Last week, we met a young man who recently changed his name to Barbara by court order.
0: About three-fourths of the way up in the center of the amphitheater seating, Dr. Arnold Lohman's ears perk
2: up. Mr. Morris will give the psychometric details before the patient is brought in.
0: Mr. Morris stands at his seat in the audience, just in front of Arnold. Everyone turns to look at him, and Arnold feels as though everyone in the room is watching him. They know. Everything Mr. Morris describes about their patient matches Arnold's own transvestic history. This week's patient is brought out. Louise Lawrence enters the amphitheater. When it's over, Arnold lingers and approaches Mr. Morris, walks with him to his car, and they chat a while. Morris is trans, too, but doesn't say so. Arnold notices he has a photo of Louise with her address on the back. When his wife is at night nursing class, Arnold gets in his car and drives just a mile and a half from his house on Prince Street to Louise Lawrence's house. Arnold knocks on the door and thinks of a fake name to give.
2: May I help you? His
0: dad is Charles. He lives on Prince Street. Hi, I'm Charles Prince. After years of misdiagnoses, Arnold finally sees something real. This Halloween, when he dresses up in feminine attire, Arnold won't be ashamed of it. He leaves the dress and gold pumps on as he reclines in the living room with his wife.
7: Go get out of those clothes. You look ridiculous.
0: I will in a bit. I'm reading the paper. You do this every year, Arnold. Halloween, New Year's Eve. Arnold sits up and swings his legs around the Davenport.
8: I will take them off when I get good and ready. You might as well know I like to wear the heels.
5: Oh, nonsense.
0: I've already
8: told Dr. Bowman at the Langley Porter Clinic. I sat down and began to spill out the awful news that I like to dress up like a girl. I hadn't confessed my guilty secret to anybody and as I had started dressing about age 12 and I'm now in my 30s that means I've guarded it carefully for about 18 years. So I felt that I was telling him something pretty significant.
5: What did the doctor say?
8: When I got to the end he leaned back in his chair put his feet up on the pulled out drawer of his desk, clasped his hands behind his head, stretched and yawned, and then quietly said,
2: So what else is new? What's so unusual about that? There are tens of thousands more just like you. You're not so special. What you need to do is just learn to accept yourself as you are and enjoy it. I don't believe you. You
8: don't believe it? I don't want to see it, Arnold.
0: But if things get to the point where you just have to get dressed up, let me know so I can go into the back room. And don't go out buying things. I'll buy them for you. Over the next year and a half, Miss Prince takes over the house every two weeks, even after their baby is born. Arnold starts a manufacturing business, taking occasional meetings in San Francisco. There, he gets dressed in his, what he calls his femme clothes, and goes to Mr. Morris's apartment. Morris is dressed too, and they're joined by his girlfriend, Betty. When Mr. Morris goes to a work meeting... Miss Prince and Betty hit the town. They check out the women's wear windows and discuss the hats, the shoes, the dresses. They hit the top of the mark. They drink and flirt with lonely Marines who try to pick them up. When it's all done, Miss Prince drops Betty at home and catches a cab back to her hotel. As I started to get
7: undressed,
8: I also started to cry, but not for any reason that I could think of. I got into bed and cried and cried, just racking sobs. It was very strange that I was crying my heart out
0: And yet I didn't know why.
8: It was about 4 a.m. before I dozed off into a fitful sleep.
0: The next day, while working around the city, Arnold carries a paperback to read on the buses to keep his attention off his mood.
8: After all, 35-year-old men didn't just go about the streets crying.
0: On the train to Los Angeles, Arnold still can't sleep. He puts on a robe at 3 a.m. and walks to the club car to write Betty a letter.
8: This was the first time in my life that another human being, knowing the true facts, had nevertheless treated me Just like I wanted to be treated, like another woman.
0: Immediately after, Arnold confronts his father in a park, in full dress, telling him everything.
8: Finally, we parted company, and for one solid year thereafter, there was not one word spoken by him relating to what I'd told him. He had a big rug in his head, and he swept quite a pile of things under it, and that's evidently where I ended up.
0: Meanwhile, Arnold's wife is seeing a psychiatrist. Who says Arnold is undoubtedly a homosexual.
8: I got a call at work about 10 a.m. It was my wife who informed me that she was taking my son, the family's silver, her clothes, etc. Since God and shrinks are always right, she took the advice and filed for divorce.
0: Arnold Lohman's family is socially prominent. So, months later, the divorce trial makes the papers. His name, his business, his transvestism. By this point, Arnold is already dating someone else. The day after his story hits the papers, it's not like Lucy Hicks Anderson going straight to jail. Arnold takes his new girlfriend to the church dance.
8: So what if I'm a transvestite?
0: Back up in the bay... Doctors Bowman and Benjamin and Louise Lawrence continue their work. One is a legal case, with the court declaring that the genital modification of one of Louise's friends would constitute mayhem, the willful destruction of healthy tissue. A surgeon can be criminally prosecuted for it. Gender confirmation surgeries cease in the U.S., except those done in strict secrecy. The Langley Porter Clinic continues their studies of gay men discharged from the military, some of whom are held in the military psychiatric prison on the Treasure Island Naval Base. There, much research into homosexuality's causes is done under the California Sex Deviates Research Act of 1950, a state-funded program to cure. It allows for castration and hormonal experimentation on homosexuals. Dr. Bowman writes,
2: I have records of two males, both of whom have asked for complete castration, including amputation of the penis, construction of an artificial vagina, and the administration of female sex hormones. I also have two cases of females who have requested a panhysterectomy and the amputation of their breasts, together with the giving of male sex hormones, in the hope that in some way the clitoris may finally develop into a penis. Male homosexuals of this type are called queens, and seem to differ markedly from the main group of homosexuals, who are more nearly like the average man. Here we have an extremely interesting field for further investigation. We are therefore setting up a careful plan to study a group of these so-called queens.
0: Many queer soldiers returning home from war are locked away, experimented on, forgotten. Some find good doctors, like Bowman and Benjamin. But only one soldier will be celebrated for it. A lurid sex scandal at the trial of a wealthy playboy has run its course at the New York Daily News. The paper is eager for another sensational tale to grab their readers— Their next scoop has been lying on a reporter's desk for a week, and now he decides it's time to use it. In a sense, then,
7: my notoriety was a matter of chance.
0: December 1st, 1952. XGI becomes blonde beauty. The New York Daily News announces the very first sex change, which, as you know from the stories told here, is incorrect. However, the papers telling her story sell fast. She set off for Sweden, the only place she could get the surgery. Making a connection in Copenhagen to see family, she met Dr. Christian Hamburger, an endocrinologist. There in Denmark, she began hormone replacement therapy and chose her name, Christine, in honor of her doctor. On September 24th, 1951, Christine had her testicles removed. Two weeks later, she wrote to friends.
7: As you can see by the enclosed photos taken just before the operation, I have changed a great deal. But it is the other changes that are so much more important. Remember the shy, miserable person who left America? Well, that person is no more. And as you can see, I'm in marvelous spirits.
0: After some more transitioning, her story has hit the papers. Time magazine has run an article explaining various medical terms and hermaphroditism. The Chicago Defender writes about her future career as an entertainer. They see her like the nuclear bomb. She's the result of many experiments now perfected, now shaking the modern understanding of science. As the Cold War builds, the East-West binaries of past wars are concrete in the American minds. A photo of Christine shatters binaries. She crossed borders. She removed Adam's rib and crafted Eve. She is proof of what a man can lose and still be whole. Christine Jorgensen can undo American masculinity with science. And now she returns to America.
5: I'm very impressed by everyone coming.
0: The crowd pushes against the ropes that marked off a quarantine walk area that separates arriving passengers until their vaccination records are validated. Three or four men crawl under the ropes to get to her. One of them is a friend who was taken immediately for a smallpox vaccination. Christina's pushed through customs and taken down a long hallway into a tiny press room full of reporters, photographers, blinding floodlights. She's sweating under the lights in that big fur coat. Uncomfortable, rattled, tense. She smiles, not really knowing who she's smiling at, and the questions begin.
1: Christina, are you happy to be home?
8: (laughs) Yes, of course. What American wouldn't be.
1: Have you been offered of a movie contract? Yes, but I haven't accepted it. Do you, uh, do you have any plans regarding the theater? No, I don't think so. Uh, are you going to go on with your photography? I hope so, yes. I
5: see. I'm very okay, happy quiet. to be
8: back, and I don't have any plans at the moment. And I thank you all for coming, but I think it's too much. Fine, thank you very
0: much. Christine is taken to an exit where a car is waiting. She asks to be taken to her sister's home on Long Island, but the staff of the American Weekly has set her up at the Carlisle Hotel in Manhattan to avoid press as their new exclusive series on Christine begins to run. She's annoyed, but sees that they're being followed by more reporters. She shouldn't go to family. They drive in circles around Manhattan, trying to lose the reporters. Christine runs into the hotel, past the front desk, and into an elevator. The operator asks what floor. She doesn't know what floor. (sighs) Just up. She's waiting on the top floor in the hallway to be found and taken to her room. Even though England is coronating a new queen, and an effective polio vaccine is finally coming, and the Korean War finally ended, a publishing industry trade magazine in 1954 will announce that Jorgensen, quote, had received the largest worldwide coverage in the history of newspaper publishing. The New York Times announces, Miss Jorgensen Returns. Many papers follow. Christine by George. Christine tears on high heels leaving the plane. Chris back home. Perfect little lady.
9: Christine conducted herself with dignity.
0: An artistically minded
3: reporter who trailed her to the swank Carlisle Hotel reported that Christine probably would not seek work modeling bras. Jorgensen was no girl at all. Only an altered male.
1: Judge wonders, is Chris real George?
0: New York Daily Mirror, February 18th, 1953. Denmark curbs Chris surgery. A top-ranking medical informant said today the Danish government has turned down appeals from more than 300 persons, over half of them Americans, for transformation operations. The informant, familiar with the series of treatments and operations performed on Christine Jorgensen, said the requests for similar surgery and treatment were denied because the Danish Minister of Justice had decided to limit treatment of future cases to Danes.
10: a solution, about a certain person, trying to find a solution, about a certain person with this modern surgery, they change him from he to she, but behind that lipstick rouge and face, I don't know if she is or is she. the idea and the spark to leave the country bound for Denmark. He tried to live the life of a man but that was not in accord with nature's plan. So he underwent this operation and came back home to shock the nation. But behind her lifting bruise and pain, I got to know if she is Made her a popular celebrity. All the public sentiment. She got movie contracts and plenty engagements. People came out of curiosity to see this amazing freak of the century. But behind that lipstick rouge and red, I still wonder if she is or if she ain't. They call her the wonder of this modern age, now she making plenty money, because of hormones and plastic surgery, drawing down 20,000 a week, and not one listening to this record could get a peak. So behind that lipstick, bruised and face, what do you think she is, boy I know she is.
0: Across the U.S., whether or not Christina is making headlines, the subcultures of various gender-variant people thrive. In Chicago, Miss Major is going to the Balls, dressing up and partying with friends. They work all year on their gowns for the South City Ball and the Maypole Ball. Queens save up so they can arrive in Cadillacs. It's the event of the year. Like many of the women at the Balls, Miss Major finds her hormones on the black market. She's homeless. She's been kicked out of two colleges for expressing her gender. She supports herself with sex work. In New York, Carlette Brown makes headlines herself in Jet Magazine, June 18, 1953.
11: A 25-year-old shake dancer and professional female impersonator announced plans to go to Europe in August for an operation to become a woman so that he could marry a U.S. Army sergeant. Charles Robert Brown of Pittsburgh told Jet he has arranged with doctors in Bonn, Germany for an operation that will make him female so that he can marry Sergeant Eugene Martin, 24.
9: We'll be married as soon as I am legally a woman.
11: If Brown's plans are realized, he will become the first Negro transvestite in history to transform his sex. One doctor diagnosed his condition as due to the abnormal existence in his system of female glands, Brown says. He wrote to his surgeons in Germany, Denmark, and Yugoslavia, asking for help in changing his sex. He was informed that the laws of these countries forbade such operations on foreigners. Dr. Christian Hamburger of Copenhagen told him that if he gave up his U.S. citizenship, he could have the operation performed in Denmark.
9: I just want to become a woman as quickly as possible. That's all. I'll become a citizen of any country where I can receive the treatment I need to be operated on.
0: Jet soon after reports that Carlette Brown has renounced her American citizenship at the Danish consulate. She plans to leave on a boat to Holland on August 2nd.
9: I regret leaving the United States, but after the Christine Jorgensen affair, the United States refuses to give an American citizen permission to alter his sex.
0: A photo appears in Jet of Carlette Brown, with her dead name, of her sitting up on a table showing her legs.
11: Charles Brown, 26-year-old male shake dancer who plans to go to Germany for an operation which will make him a woman, shows friends in a Boston nightclub correct technique for displaying legs. Later, Brown, who had hair set before visiting club, was arrested for wearing women's clothes, Fine
0: $5. Carlette is unable to raise the $5 bail.
11: Charles Brown of Pittsburgh was picked up by police in downtown Boston dressed in a woman's tote suit ensemble, which he had purchased the same day. He added that he might work way abroad as a ship's mess attendant. Virtually destitute in Boston, Brown also admitted that he sold his blood for $5 a pint to raise money for room, rent, and food, explained.
9: Things are awfully tough in Boston.
0: Four days after Carlette's planned departure for Holland, Jet prints a story explaining that she's postponed her trip for facial feminization surgery.
11: Although he plans to have his sex changed, Brown will keep his ties with female impersonators.
9: I feel that female impersonators are being denied their right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when they are arrested for wearing female clothes, especially when they are minding their own business.
0: The press depicts Carlette Brown as the Black Christine Jorgensen. But that role carries major economic, political, and social disadvantages. Carlette struggles to even afford her surgeries. And even if she can get them, it doesn't change her relationship to the police. On October 15, 1953, Jet reports one last time on Carlette Brown, that she's postponed plans to go to Europe indefinitely. She's ordered by the federal government to stay in the country until she pays $1,200 owed in income tax.
9: I took a a $60-a-week temporary job as a cook at Iowa State College's Phi Kappa House to begin repaying the debt.
0: Meanwhile, the American Weekly's series of articles, which told Christine Jorgensen's story as, quote, a desperately unhappy person with the fortitude to overcome a seemingly hopeless obstacle, is translated into 14 languages and printed in 70 countries. She tells her doctors in Copenhagen she needs...
7: As much good publicity as possible, for the sake of all those to whom I am a representation of themselves.
0: Every story in the series is verified by Christine's doctors in order to stop untrue rumors. The press continues to haunt her. She sells her family's home of 26 years in the Bronx to build a new one in Long Island. People find that too. They drive by, taking photos of the empty lot. One family even picnics on it. When the house is done, people start looking through the windows with binoculars. Christine and her parents sort through 20,000 letters, some from countries she's never even heard of. Some are simply addressed, Christine Jorgensen, United States of America.
7: I could only marvel at the ingenuity of the postal department.
0: Most letters are supportive or express interest. Some are hostile.
5: If more people would face the brunt of the battle, I'm sure we would all live in a much more pleasant world.
11: May God bless you for your courage so that other people may more clearly understand our problem.
5: Hundreds of thousands of people who look to
0: Chris today as a sort of liberation. Deep in the pile is a letter that will change her life.
4: Dear Miss Jorgensen, These lines are written to you in the interest of some of my patients and naturally all of those whose emotional problem nobody understands better than you do. Frankly, I am worried over the effect of your story and publicity may have in some instances. I had a few rather frantic phone calls and letters recently, therefore I would be grateful to you if you would tell me how you are handling the innumerable communications that undoubtedly came to you. Don't they all indicate hopefulness, yet utter frustration? In my many years of practice of sexology and endocrinology, problems similar to yours have been brought to me frequently. Can I be of assistance? If so, please feel free to call on me. Most sincerely and earnestly yours, Harry Benjamin, MD.
0: In Dr. Benjamin's research, he defines the difference between a transvestite and a transsexual, narrower than Dr. Hirschfeld did. He writes that a transvestite simply wants to change their gendered clothing, their vestments, like Virginia Prince. A transsexual requires surgery, he says, like Christine Jorgensen. His definitions stick around for a long time. Later, Dr. Benjamin will serve as the medical advisor for Christine's vaginoplasty, what we often now call bottom surgery. Again, terms can change in a minute. Until then, Christine is just going to the DMV to renew her license. Another step in her famous career. Attending charitable fundraisers organized by friends.
7: Before we knew her as a terribly shy, inhibited person, but actually what we saw was a new woman
2: coming into a world of her own.
0: And meeting celebrities like Cole Porter, Danny Kaye, Truman Capote, often at their request.
7: I was flattered to think that I should be interesting and sought after, frankly, charmed by the attention, and was guilty of some goggle-eyed celebrity watching in return. There's no doubt that curiosity was the main reason I was in demand socially. Recently, one of my friends who was an interested bystander of the period has said, At the time, everybody in the world wanted to meet Chris, and damn near everybody did. On the other hand, I knew that much of the curiosity and interest stemmed from the understandable fact that people were looking for answers.
0: And if they can't get answers, they make up their own. The fellow who wanted to be his own girl, Christine Jorgensen. Christine Jorgensen has Treasury agents excitedly anticipating the surfacing of her income tax report in the heap, curious to know whether it was filed as male, female, or perhaps a joint return. Songs like Gene the Charmer's Is She Is or Is She Ain't poke fun at
2: Christine
10: that went this operation and came back home to shop the nation. But behind her lips they cruise and vent because I don't know she is or if she ain't.
0: Mass market paperbacks cash in, publishing Half by Jordan Park in 1953.
5: What was his body's dark secret that made him neither man nor woman?
0: And other trans-themed stories are published, such as a reissue of 1933's Man Into Woman, a biography of one of Hirschfeld's patients, Lily Elbe, again, made into a movie.
7: I was by then beginning to get an inkling of what to expect, not only in public, but of the adjustments I would be making from then on. Apparently, I was just going to have to get used to the idea of being stared at and inspected. People were going to be interested in inquisitive, I decided, and I would just have to accept it as logical, if I was going to function in the world at all.
0: A letter from Denmark comes informing Christine that she's been selected as the Scandinavian Societies of Greater New York's Woman of the Year. She agrees to attend the event of 5,000 guests because proceeds will go to many charities.
3: It's my great pleasure to personally present you with this citation here as the Woman of the Year for your contribution to the advancement of medical
5: science.
9: Thank you very much, Dr. Berlin. I want to say how deeply I am touched by this honor that has been given to me tonight, but I feel that those who should have been with us and were unable to be here are the ones that are really responsible for my success. That's my doctors and my friends. Thank you again.
7: I must admit that I was surprised and very moved by that honor. To me, my accomplishments had seemed to be of such a highly personal nature insignificant to anyone but me and the Danish medical men who had contributed so much to my existence. To receive a public award for something that was a transition to normalcy seemed an undue recognition, but I was grateful for their acknowledgement and accepted it with pleasure."
0: A week later, she's appearing at Madison Square Garden to speak for another charity event. Though many network executives ban her from talk shows, she's still booking some television shows and many events. Jackie Gleason performs at Madison Square Garden before she takes the stage to speak to 18,000 people. Walter Winchell announces her.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, meet Miss Christine Jorgensen.
7: I know that I was nervous and frightened, but the brief speech I addressed to the audience was a simple expression of the honor accorded to me at being invited and the opportunity to be a useful citizen of New York City. Suddenly it was over and I walked off stage followed by a deafening ovation, experiencing that peculiar excitement and stimulation that I would come to know better later on. Although I still had one more large medical step before total fulfillment, I had started on the new life I'd looked toward, prayed for, and knew was rightfully mine. In more ways than one, I had come home at last.
0: Dr. Harry Benjamin wrote in the preface of Christine Jorgensen's autobiography, giving her credit for his research.
4: Indeed, Christine, without you, probably none of this would have
1: happened.
7: I suppose you've been admiring yourself all this time.
0: Sure, why not? Arnold Loman's mother's new maid catches him dressing up for a party in his mother's velvet evening wrap. One night, after spending time together, the maid calls in the middle of the night.
7: Hello? I just had to call you and tell
8: you that I understand you understand what why why you like to
5: dress up i understand you now
0: arnold invites her over one night waiting at the top of the stairs in full gown with the lights low she enters and as the door closes they step into the light she has a new haircut for him and arnold has on a wig for her which she's never seen before they're soon married and building a house in hollywood Arnold makes friends with a minister named Lynn, who also considers himself a cross-dresser, and Arnold reconnects with Louise Lawrence and the other women in Southern California and the Bay Area. They start meeting to dress as women and talk.
8: A ratty little place in Long Beach. No sex, no orgy, no parading around in the world. We could all just be girls together.
0: Sitting on the broken-down sofa and living it up as often as they can over a few years, they slowly create the idea of putting out a magazine. They have several transvestite pen pal friends around the country, and they have Louise Lawrence's extensive address book, and of course her connection to Alfred Kinsey and Harry Benjamin. They put together a newsletter of essays and poems printed on mimeograph paper. They call it Transvestia. It's likely the first political trans publication in the U.S., though the writers are careful to define their group as heterosexual men who like to dress up, not people we would now consider transgender women. However, because Arnold Lohman will soon choose a new name and eventually live as Virginia Prince for the rest of her life, it is relatively safe to assume that much of, but not all of, transvestia is written by trans women like Virginia Prince and Louise Lawrence. Unfortunately, the publication folds after just two issues. It's expensive, and the writing is long-winded. But a few years later, Virginia can't stop thinking about it. She writes up a prospectus and sends it off to the old mailing list. She gets 25 subscribers at $4 per person and builds a new magazine on that $100. Her secretary helps her type it up and send it off to an offset printer, and 100 copies are made. In January 1960, shortly after the Cooper's Donut riot, the new Transvestia is mailed out. Adoring letters fill Virginia's post office box. Her pen pal, who is mentioned in Transvestia as Bob-Barbara, Bob-Barbara has advertising experience, and she helps Virginia establish Chevalier Publications. Despite operating in the same city as the riot at Cooper's Donuts, the men and women of Transvestia are likely unaware of the event in L.A.'s skid row. Both groups are gender-variant, but Virginia Prince's publication is mostly written by and for upper-class white people. Like the case of Lucy Hicks Anderson, walking down a different intersection of trans identity brings its own challenges and separation from other avenues. While Arnold Lohman risks her professional career and visitation with her son every time she goes out or publishes as Virginia Prince, other trans people risk denial of housing, refusal of medical care and social services, and inability to get a passport or ID, As Christine Jorgensen's body is held up as the ideal, the promise of rebirth and transgender freedom, she still represents the respectable, heterosexual, domestic white woman, passing as heteronormative. What many trans and gender-variant people have in common is that they are not always easily hidden in the ways that homosexuals might be. If they can't pass as cisgender in public, even if they're trying to but can't, they likely face violence and charges pressed against them. The only way to access higher places in the world has been for people to bind their chests or find the right doctor to become cis-passing and cross new landscapes of gender. What makes a man a man or a woman a woman? How is your physical body related to your social role? These are questions a lot of cisgender people typically do not have to ask themselves. Queer people have been asking them, oftentimes quietly to themselves, for 5,000 years, Historian Susan Stryker writes, gender and identity are like gravity and breathing. Seemingly simple, but really complicated phenomena when you start breaking them down. Magnus Hirschfeld wrote that because every single person has a unique combination of sex characteristics, secondary sex traits like beards and breasts, erotic preferences, psychological disposition, and cultures they are raised in, there are more than 43 million combinations, thus 43 million genders. The stories of the innumerable trans people that have existed are only able to be told now if they were recorded or found out, if they were experienced by a person who could write them down, if they were legible or translatable, if they were published, if they survived the book burnings, if they were authorized and archived. What survives is just a whisper of our history. The first U.S. riot of transgender people in the history books is at Cooper's Donuts in 1959. And though they are disconnected from their trans siblings across town, and even more so from the conservative homophile movement in San Francisco, their fight in the streets of Skid Row is an indication of the riots to come that will bring all American queer people a new liberation. If you weren't on board with terms like intersectionality before today, I hope you are now. I'd like to read one more quote from historian Susan Stryker, whose book, Transgender History, and her documentary, Screaming Queens, are huge resources for this podcast. She wrote, Violence, law, and custom hold these social hierarchies—colonialism, racism, and sexism—in place. As one who can still stumble and fumble in my coalitional work in spite of my best intentions, I know I have a lot to learn from the accumulated centuries of experience-based wisdom, social critique, life skills, and freedom dreams that millions of people of color have developed for themselves to survive within colonialism and racism. I hope my retelling of these stories honors the wisdom and resilience of our queer ancestors of color, like Lucy Hicks Anderson and Carlette Brown. And if you're listening to this podcast, I highly recommend watching Pose. If you'd like to learn more about intersex awareness or support a good cause, check out intersexjusticeproject.org. They're doing great work, especially right here in Chicago, trying to end intersex surgeries on infants at Lurie Children's Hospital here in Chicago. There's a link in the episode notes. The song Make More Room for Jesus during the Lucy Hicks Anderson segment was performed by the Spirit of Memphis Quartet in 1950. Their lead tenor was Wilmer Little Axe Brodnax, who was a trans man of color. Thank you to Cook Sing Right on Apple Podcasts for writing Five Stars Overlooked Corners of the Queer Movement Exposed. Great headline. This show is chock full of insight you probably haven't heard before about the history of the queer rights movement. It uncovers nooks and crannies that often go overlooked, even in some of the most dedicated queer histories. This thing is thorough. The episodes are a little on the long side, but that makes them great for long drives. Thank you, Cooksing Right. Yes, I am very long-winded. Every voicemail I've ever left in my life has been cut off by the mean, automated robot lady. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the podcast. And share the show with everyone, especially this episode. Please spam JK Rowling with it on Twitter. Also, my writing partner and I have written a children's book about the transgender cowboy Charlie Parkhurst. If you have any connections to somehow helping us get that published, message me at queerserial.com. Coming for your crown, Miss Rowling. A huge thank you to some of my top donors who helped make season two happen. White Ken, Brian Bringardner, and Andrea Holland. Thank you so much for your support. Many of them are in the Hose and Heels Club donor level on my Patreon. We'll explore the name of that donor level in an upcoming episode. You can support the show at patreon.com slash serial and get tons of fun rewards and the bonus podcast. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, San Francisco. Voice actors. So many people recording from quarantine during COVID. Thank, COVID. COVID. Thank you so much to all of you who patiently recorded with me over Zoom. The Sumerian god Enki and the doctor James Sims were voiced by my sweet grandpa Steve Camp. He voices tons of scary men on this podcast, but he's truly the nicest guy. Catch him at every human rights protest in Indianapolis. Another cop voiced by Mike Lysak, also a very sweet guy who happens to voice a ton of cops on this podcast. Doctor by Will Roscoe, a truly vicious queen. New York Times reporter by Garrett Williams, German reporter and Dr. Harry Benjamin by Guido Goetz. Life Magazine reporter by John Roth, Lucy Hicks Anderson by Fatelani Velasquez, a truly stunning queen, Prosecutor by Evan Camp Dr. Carl Bowman by Dan Unser Louisa's wife by Lucy Jones Virginia Prince by Jacqueline Keeling Mrs. Loman and Miss D by Courtney Tesh Jet Reporter by Jacoba White Christine Jorgensen by Jack Murphy Jen by Marissa Barbara Clayton Walter Winchell by John Roth Reporters by Steve Camp, Katie Spleet, Garrett Williams, Matthew Ellenwood, Matthew Riley, and Tim O'Reilly Carlette Brown by Samuel Miles Letters to Christine, read by Olgie Fryer, Nico Valdez, and Jacqueline Keeling. Thank you so much to so many actors, friends, and family who helped bring the show to life. Next week, Episode 8, Peddled Like Pornography. Follow me at Queer Serial on Instagram and Twitter for visuals from this episode. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society gesture logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you for listening. I'm Devlin Camp, and here's another one by Little Axe Broadnecks and the Golden Echoes.
3: Oh, so soon I'm gonna tell him just how you feel me And then I'm gonna tell him just how you stole me I'm gonna, I'm gonna